Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 15, verse 18, through chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to see you, those of you who are here, New Hope Fellowship, those of you who are at home. I'm glad to be able to worship with you, at least virtually. I've missed so many of you. And uh, God willing, we'll be able to see each other soon and worship not only as one body, but one body in one place. Um, I'm going to invite you to open up to John 15, if you haven't already, this passage that Jamie just read to us. John 15, verse 18. Most of us, we like to be liked, don't we? And most of us hate being hated. It's natural. In this passage, there is good news and there is bad news for us. The good news we've already seen previously, Jesus has already told us that we are loved in John 15. But now he's telling us that we'll be hated. How do we deal with that? Well, God willing, we'll see as we walk through this passage how to deal with being hated. Just a little bit of context for us to start with. Jesus just shared a final meal with his disciples, final meal before his crucifixion. And during that meal, and after it, he reminded them of how much he loves them. He also told them to love each other, just as he loved them. He said that in chapter 13, 34, and then chapter 15, 12, love one another just as I have loved you. And that's a challenging command, isn't it? To love one another as Jesus has loved us. But we saw this two weeks ago. Jesus shows them, and he shows us, that the more they know, and the more they experience his love, the more they'll be able to love one another. 
And that's a vital, vital fact. It's a beautiful truth as well. The more we experience rest in, to use Jesus's words, the more we abide in his love, the more we'll be able to love one another. And all of that that Jesus says up until this point, it sets up these very difficult words in chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that word for persecute, it means to harass, but it can mean to harass severely, even to the point of death. He goes on, he says, if they kept my word, they will also keep your words. You know, some people did keep Christ's words. There weren't many of them. And so the apostles can expect that many people will not keep their words as well. And then Jesus goes on. But all these things, all the harassment, all the persecution, they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. So earlier, Jesus already told them, you are my friends. And two weeks ago, we, we tried to understand just a, a bit of what that means. We, we tried to, to, to unpack some of the comfort and some of the security that comes from enjoying covenant friendship with Jesus. If you missed that message, I do encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. But now, he says, friendship with me means hostility from the world. He says, you'll be hated because you're my friends on account of me. It's not about you. It's about me, he says. When we read the Bible, we are sometimes, we're too quick to, to personalize what we read. What I mean is this, we read scripture, and, and in this case, we read the words of Jesus to his disciples, and almost immediately we want to say, what does this mean for me? We want to make personal application. We want to read it as an individual, perhaps even individualistically. What does this mean for me? How will I be hated? Am I hated? If so, who hates me and why or why not? How do I respond to being hated? Those are all really good questions, but you see, when we jump to those questions, we're making it all about ourselves. There's no doubt that Christ's words here and throughout the whole scriptures, they apply to each of us. But we are liable to misunderstand how they apply to us. And we're likely to miss much of the purpose behind God's words when we immediately try to make it about ourselves. When we immediately try to say, what is this saying to me right now? So to avoid that, we need to ask, and this is not just for this passage, we need to ask this generally whenever we read scripture, who literally and immediately was God speaking to? In this case, who was Jesus immediately speaking to in the first place? And then take it from there. The fact is that especially with passages like this, we're liable to make it about us, especially if you happen to look around the world and you think, you've observed that Christianity is perhaps becoming less and less acceptable in our culture. Maybe Christian or biblical perspectives are becoming less and less tolerated in our culture. You're immediately, you, you, you might be tempted to read this and say, okay, how am I being hated right now because I want to follow Jesus? 
in the workplace or in school or at home even amongst my family. And again, we want to get there, but we don't want to jump there. We need to ask, what does this mean to the people that Jesus was originally speaking to? So today, we're going to look at these words from three different angles, right? Really in three steps. We're going to say, how did they apply, first of all, to the 11 disciples who were in that room, Jesus' apostles? Secondly, how do they apply to Christ's people as a whole, community, the church, his church, around the world and through history? And then lastly, how do they apply to you and me right here and right now? So first of all, what did this mean for the apostles who were in the room with Jesus? Earlier that evening, they had heard from Jesus that the hour for his death had come. He was going to leave them. He'd eventually return to bring them to himself. But in the meantime, while he was gone, he was going to, the God, the Father, was going to send his spirit, another helper to care for these apostles, just as Jesus had cared for them while he was alive and with them. Those, by the way, are all astounding facts, aren't they? Those are like bombs going off in these apostles' laps. Our leader, our rabbi, who we gave everything up to follow, is leaving? He's dying? But eventually he's going to come back and bring us to be with him? What does that even mean? And while he's gone, he's going to send a spirit, his spirit, to help us? Their heads must have been spinning. And then to make things even more complicated, perhaps harder to swallow, Jesus told them, while I'm gone, expect more hostility. Expect worsening persecution and probably death. How were they supposed to respond to all that? That same evening, just hours later, Jesus would be arrested. And those very same 11 disciples, they got so frightened, so scattered, they, they left Jesus. They abandoned him at the point when he was arrested. One of them would even deny ever knowing Jesus. Jesus later would stand ashamed or put to shame before a corrupt jury. He'd stand trial. He'd later be publicly beaten and executed. His corpse would be wrapped up and laid in a tomb. And those 11 men would mourn confused, ashamed, trying to make sense of it all. And then, in less than 72 hours, all 11 of those same men would claim to have seen Jesus again, in the flesh, resurrected. And those claims would be corroborated by hundreds of other people who would claim the same thing. And then 40 days later, those same 11 men would begin to proclaim as loudly as they could and as widely as they could that Jesus had risen from the grave and that he is Lord and that his death and his resurrection meant forgiveness for anyone and everyone who believed in him. His death and his resurrection meant eternal life for anyone and everyone who believed in him. Those 11 men who just moments earlier were scared out of their minds, confused, 
grieved and wondering what to do with their lives, would be proclaiming that message. And they would do all of that in the face of strict commands to stop under the threat of imprisonment and death. So when Jesus speaks to his disciples here in chapter 15, verse 18, down to chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus wasn't just warning his disciples about trouble that was coming. What Jesus told them would later fill them with courage. Because look at verse 4, chapter 16. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. These 11 apostles were literally put out of their synagogues, kicked out, as Jesus said they would be. That means they were no longer welcome to worship with their community, with other Jews. They were kicked out of their cultural, ethnic, religious community as a whole. Ten of those 11 men would be killed, just as Jesus predicted in verse 2. The religious people who would have them killed would claim that they were actually offering service to God by killing these men. And the only one of them who wasn't executed was John, the author of this gospel. He'd be imprisoned and exiled, sent far from home, all on account of Jesus' name, all on account of Jesus' name. And they would come to find, to learn more and more what a powerful name that is. They prayed in his name and God answered. They healed and they cast out demons in his name. They lay the foundation for a movement that would span 20 centuries and counting all in Jesus' name. But bearing that name also came with a cost. And they willingly paid that cost with their lives. Here's just a personal takeaway for all of us from this especially if you find yourself at times doubting Christianity, doubting the gospel. If that's you, even perhaps now, recently, if you're, if you're at home listening to this and maybe you're young or maybe you're old, maybe you claim to have believed in Christ or maybe not, but the fact is, should I stop Tim or should I keep going? Yeah. If you find yourself doubting Christianity and its claims. I want to encourage you, don't don't ignore those doubts. And and don't push those doubts down. Instead, question them. Explore them. In fact, I would invite you, I would even challenge you to start with this question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, then nothing he says matters. This book, this Bible, it might be kind of helpful, but it's not worth staking your life on if Jesus was not killed and resurrected. But if he was, then you need to consider everything this book says. You see, if he really rose from the dead, then every claim, every command, and every promise deserves your attention, deserves your trust. And I want to propose to you that the lives of these apostles testify to the fact 
that Jesus did rise from the grave. Because remember, when he died, they were frightened, they were ashamed, they were confused. But something changed, everything changed for them. Look, if they did not with their own eyes see the Lord alive, why would they stubbornly claim to have seen him alive, even in the face of death? Why would they continue to declare that Jesus is the risen Savior, that he's the king of creation, that he's Lord over sin and death, if they knew he really wasn't? Because he died, and that was the end of the story. You see, these men, these 11 who were in that room that night, they didn't just risk their lives for the message of the gospel. They surrendered their own bodies up to be tortured. They gave up their lives on account of his name. We have to ask, why would they do that? Many people have died for their beliefs. But how many people would give up their lives, give up everything for something they knew wasn't true? How many people would give up everything and live impoverished lives under constant threat just to communicate this message that they knew wasn't true. A fairy tale that they had spun themselves. And then they died proclaiming it? He is risen. He is Lord. You see, those 11 men, they heard the warnings that Jesus spoke to them that night about hostility, about the murder that they would live in, under the threat of. And in a matter of weeks, they walked right into all of that. Filled with the Spirit, they just march towards it. And that is evidence for the truth of the Christian message. So if you're struggling with doubts about whether or not to believe the Bible, don't ignore those doubts. Press in. Let's start with this question. Did Jesus rise? Did he die and live again? These 11 men gave up everything to proclaim he did, that he is Lord. And his death, they died to proclaim that his death and resurrection paid for the sin of every human being who would believe in him. Do you believe that? Those of you who are at home, do you believe that? Are you struggling to believe that? Again, press into those doubts. Don't ignore them and don't reject the gospel out of hand. Ask yourself this question and ask yourself, what does the life of the apostles tell me about whether Jesus Christ really rose from the dead? Jesus' words, they were not just for those 11 men in the room that night. They were for his church, his church. So let's look at that next. And by the church, what I mean is God's people uh, the single community around the world, throughout the centuries. We here at New Home Fellowship are one local church, and there are other local churches here in Tarrytown, in Westchester, in New York, in America. We're just small local churches, but we are all part of a global, universal community that's made up of all these churches throughout the world and throughout history. And the Bible describes that community in different ways. The Bible calls it a family, calls it a temple and a body. For instance, Colossians 1 says that to be a member of this body, 
is to be connected with Jesus, its head. First Peter 2 says that to be a part of this temple that is the church of God worldwide, you know, part of that temple means you're a living stone who has come to Jesus, the cornerstone on which the whole temple is built. Ephesians 1 says that to be a member of this family means you've been adopted into it through faith in Jesus. So again, the Bible uses all these different metaphors to talk about and to show us that becoming a member of this community of God's people, it only happens by believing in Jesus. Connecting with him through faith, you come into the family, you become a part of the temple, a part of the body. So everyone who has believed in Jesus is in forever. But at the same time, the Bible teaches us that if you are a part of that community, a part of his church, you're also out. You're out. Look at John 15, 18. The very beginning of the passage we're looking at today. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, Christians as a whole were chosen out of the world. And therefore, Jesus says, the world will hate you. In a sense, he's saying Christians as a whole throughout history and around the world have lost their place and are no longer at home in this world. It's why 1 Peter chapter 1 calls the church a community of elect exiles or chosen exiles. Hebrews 11 calls the church foreigners and strangers on the earth. You get the idea, right? If you come from an immigrant family, or if you've lived overseas, perhaps you know all too well that foreigners aren't always welcome, are they? Sometimes they are rejected, sometimes they're abused, marginalized, oppressed, treated badly. So Jesus says, because you are my followers, you are no longer of this world. So expect to be treated accordingly. And by the way, he doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you follow Jesus. Now you're not an earthling anymore. You are all earthlings, I trust, I hope. I am too, trust me. But when Jesus is talking about the world here, he's talking about something other than just this planet. When he, and he's talking about more than just the collection of everyone on this planet. He's talking about the world as a, a system, a, a kingdom, an established society that is anti-God. A kingdom that revolves around things like power and money and self that values those things as ultimate, even worships them. And, 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 is, and will, people will die and lie and hurt and kill to get those things. It's a fallen kingdom. It's a doomed kingdom. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He and his church are not of this world. So, he says, expect 
to be treated like a foreigner because that's what you are and not a welcomed foreigner, a hated one. Maybe you have experienced rejection, hostility because of your faith in Jesus. Maybe in your family or maybe at work, I don't know. But, but for now, remember, we're trying not to think about ourselves as individuals right now. We're trying to see how Jesus' words apply to the church as a whole, as this community around the world and through the centuries. And what we need to see is that throughout history and right now, Christ's church is suffering pain and persecution on account of Jesus' name. According to the 2020 World Watch list, every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. An organization called Open Doors that keeps track of stats like this and raises support and prayer for persecuted Christians around the world, they list the, the top 50 countries where Christians are being hurt because of their faith right now. And estimates, they estimate that in just those top 50 countries, 260 million professing Christians are experiencing high to severe levels of persecution. That's more than two-thirds of the population of the United States. In places like, these are the top five, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Six through 10 are Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, and India. Part of why I read all that is because we knew what we need to know that we are part of something bigger than us. We are part of a global family. It's too easy for us to get all caught up with the serious issues that are facing our nation right now caught up with issues of religious liberty here. But are we lamenting and are we interceding for our brothers and sisters in places like China, where Christians are under surveillance and experiencing raids on their churches, facing the threat of imprisonment, or in places like Nigeria, where Christians experience kidnapping, rape, and murder, and those nations aren't even in the top 10. And Open Doors tells us that the trend is upwards, the number is climbing. And we need to ask, what can we do? How can we pray? But look, the, the, the takeaway that, that I want us to, to get right now is not to simply lament or even to intercede and help our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Both of those things are extremely important. But right now, right now, my goal is not to make us feel bad for them. Back to the text. What Jesus tells us here is expect it. That's his burden that he's trying to communicate to the church. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. His point here is not pray for the persecuted church, although they must do that. And he is talking to them earlier about loving one another. So certainly praying for our persecuted brethren, seeking to, to help them is part of this. But really, the, the, the most obvious thing that he wants us to come away from this with is expect persecution. Why? 1521, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know who sent me. So why is this happening? Why? Jesus says they're harassing and they're hurting and they're killing because they don't know God. In verse 22, he says, if I had come and spoken to them, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He's saying, they would not be guilty of this specific sin of seeing and hearing and rejecting Jesus if he hadn't actually shown up personally. And they heard him and they saw him and they rejected him. But then he says in verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. You see, it's not just that he's saying this hatred is not just because people don't know my father. He says it's because they actually hate my father. They don't know him, but they still hate him. If they really knew him, they would love him. But they don't. So they hate him, and they hate me, and they hate my people. And at the end of verse 25, he says... But the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Ultimately, there's no cause to hurt, to hate Jesus. There's no true cause to hate his people. It's unjustified, he's saying, but it's expected. Again, these words were primarily for those 11 men in the room, but it's been true of the church around the world and through history. Hasn't it? The church in the United States, if anything, is, is an exception. Perhaps not a unique, you know, one-of-a-kind exception, but the level of hate and persecution that we've experienced in this country is not normal. What Jesus is describing here is normal. And he goes on in verse 26, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. What Jesus is talking about. He's telling us that to, that to the degree that the church testifies about Jesus, bears witness to who Christ is, as king, savior, the church will suffer like he did. But don't pity the church. Don't pity the church. Because 1 Peter 4.13 is true. Where one of the apostles in the room that day, many years later as an old man, wrote these words. After he had suffered, and soon he would be executed, he wrote these words but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The persecuted church is the blessed church. So what can we take away from this? Like I said before, we are a part of something big and eternal and blessed. In fact, from God's perspective, you and I, if you are a believer in Christ, brother and sister, you and I have more in common with our siblings in Eritrea, in Yemen, than we do with our unbelieving colleagues, classmates, and neighbors, and even family members. Maybe you feel like you have suffered persecution, but nothing compared to what Jesus is describing here. Maybe, maybe you would classify it more as hate, because hate and persecution are two separate things. Jesus talks about both. Maybe you felt rejected, you felt scorned. But you think it's nothing like what Jesus is talking about here. Maybe that's most of us in this room. But if you are a follower of Christ, know that the you here in John 15, it shouldn't just be understood individualistically. It should be understood corporately as part of the universal body. You, body of Christ, you suffer when a church building is burnt to the ground in India. We suffer when a Christian family loses their dad to imprisonment or execution in Libya. That is you. It's us. What did Jesus say when he stopped Saul, the terrorist, who was all about imprisoning and killing Christians? What did Jesus say to him when he stopped them in his tracks? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Didn't he? Because he so associates himself with the church that he says, you hurt them, you hurt me. And this is the same Jesus who just, in a couple of chapters, in this very same book, he's going to pray in chapter 17 that his people would live as if they were one because they are one, one with him and one with each other. We are one. Across the planet and throughout history with everyone who is in Christ. So yes, lament and grieve and intercede and plead with God and do what you can to, uh, to assuage the suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world, but do it with hope. Because First Peter 4.13 is true. There's blessedness in that suffering. Lastly, we got to see what this passage means for us as individuals. And really, like I said before, we're usually too quick to jump to this point, and that's why we've taken our time. Not many of us are going to experience the level of hate and persecution that those 11 apostles did or that others throughout the church have over the years. But if we do experience hate and persecution, Jesus is saying to us as individuals, one, don't be surprised. And two, if you don't experience any hate, you should ask why. I think it's a good question for us to ask. Friendship with Jesus means you're no longer at peace with the world. Remember when we studied James um, months and months ago? In James chapter 4, Jesus' brother says, 
you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see what James is, is talking about? He's talking about that temptation to, to be loved by the world. Don't we all feel that? To be accepted. James says, that's actually adultery. Here's why. Because you're saying that the love of Christ is not enough for you. You have found covenant friendship with Christ, but you found it to be unsatisfying. And so you're wandering. You're going elsewhere to find the affection and the acceptance that you long for. Walking away from the covenant relationship with him to find it elsewhere. No wonder James says, you adulterous people. And so if you're not being hated, I'm not saying you should look to be hated. Christians can be pretty good at that sometimes, right? We can bring on hate for the wrong reasons. But if you're not facing any kind of scorn, any kind of disapproval, we do need to ask, am I bearing witness to Jesus? Am I being a willing instrument used by the Spirit to bear witness to Christ? Because when Jesus bore witness to himself, he got into a lot of trouble. John Lewis, the, the longtime uh, representative and um, civil rights activist and icon, just recently died. He died yesterday. And he, he coined, I believe, the term good trouble. He said, when we fight injustice, we're going to get in trouble. But don't worry, it's, it's good trouble. Testifying to the name of Jesus will undoubtedly bring us good trouble. And if we're not getting into good trouble, we have to ask why. Is it because you care more about what others think of you than what Jesus has called you to? If you are experiencing suffering and pain because of your faith, or you expect to experience it soon, question we started with at the very beginning of this message was how do we deal with that? What do we do about that? Our culture, and by our culture, I don't mean America, I mean evangelical culture, like church culture, it offers us two strategies for how to deal with hate, and both of them are awful. Both of them amount to basically trying to avoid suffering and persecution. The first strategy is this one, become like the culture so you don't stick out. That's obvious, right? If I become like the world, why is anyone going to hate me? They won't know that I'm not of the world. Fit in and be accepted. It, it, I will be unthreatening to the world if I'm just like them. Of course, in order to do that, it means downplaying the less popular aspects of who Jesus is and what he taught, doesn't it? We can't pretend to be of the world and be just like the world while we also hold to and communicate Jesus's full body of teaching, his sexual ethic, what he taught about his own exclusivity. No one comes to the Father but through me. What he said about sin, what he said about judgment, what he said about hell. 
we have to abandon all that if we're going to become like the culture to not get hated on by the culture. But then there's another strategy. That one's awful. I hope you'll agree, but there's another one. It's fight as an individual and as a citizen, as a person in this nation, fight and lobby and vote your way to power and influence Christians. Identify the political party that seems to best reflect with the church's values and go all in in an, in an effort to amass political power, to assure that your Christian perspectives will be represented, that your rights will be protected, that your influence and our influence will be maintained in government and in society. Amass power, amass influence. And then no one will hate you because you'll be too powerful. The church will be too powerful to hate. But where in the Bible does it tell us to do anything like that? Where does the Bible tell us to fight for influence so that we can live comfortably and not be hated and not be persecuted? Those of the Bible instead tell us we better learn how to live under persecution and hate. Pray to, be, to live peaceful and quiet and lives but not for comfortable. Shouldn't we be learning how to live well as aliens rather than trying to take over and make other people aliens, the unbelievers? We could look elsewhere for what the Bible has to say about how to live in the face of persecution, but I think really just in this very passage, in this section of scripture, Jesus tells us enough. He gives us the foundational truths that we need to be able to face persecution. We saw it earlier in weeks past. In verse 9 of chapter 15, he says, abide in my love. You want to survive and actually flourish under persecution and hate? Abide in Jesus' love. That is, the more you enjoy, the more we experience, the more we appreciate and the rest in the love that Jesus has for us, the more okay we'll be with getting hated by other people other than Jesus. His love will start to become enough for us. Abide in my love, he says. And then he also says, love one another, doesn't he? He says, love, abide in my love, and then love one another. That's, his, that's all he's been talking about through this whole section of chapter 15. Because he really, he knows that we can try to abide in Jesus' love individually. I'm going to read about what Jesus says. I'm going to read about how he loves me. I'm going to pray to him. I'm going to memorize scripture about how he loves me. I'm going to do my best to believe all of that. But he knows that we're not going to make it unless we're doing that in community, in a community where we are loving one another, where I just don't have to read about how Jesus loves me. I can experience Jesus' love through Tim, and through Amanda, and through Jen, through Brian. I can experience his love and, and share his love in this community, in Christ. You see what he's saying? We're not going to survive persecution and hate on our own. We need to be resting in the love of Christ. We need to be leaning on one another. There's strength that comes from being a part of a community that says, it's not just I'm hated, it's we're hated. I'm not just called to love, we're called to love. It's not just that I'm called to 
return good for evil, it's that we together are called to return good for evil, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to speak truth together as a community that prays together, that encourages one another, that serves one another, that sings together about Christ's love. It's only in community that we can face persecution. And it is no mistake and no coincidence that where there has been severe persecution throughout history, the community of God's people has grown stronger, more loving, and more like Jesus. Practically speaking, this looks like joining a church and just being a part of a fellowship, serving one another, loving one another. And as we do that, the message of the gospel actually becomes more winsome. The other crazy thing that's happening in many of these countries where persecution is, at its, at, at, is, is high to severe, as the people at Open Door say, another amazing reality about those countries is that the church isn't just getting stronger, it's actually getting bigger in some of those places. Because life in community, where people are experiencing and giving God's love to one another, actually makes the gospel more believable, more attractive. Division in the church doesn't just grieve Christ. It leaves us unready for hate. But loving one another will strengthen us. We're not going to love being hated when it comes, but it's going to strengthen us. We will be prepared to experience pain with hope. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, you know we like to be liked and we hate being hated. We fear being hated, so fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to enjoy your love and to love one another so that together we can live with hope and wait for your return. And while we wait, help us to testify to you and to take anything that comes on account of your name. Would our love for one another make the gospel more attractive to those who even now hate you? It's in your name we pray.